You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, welcome to the 235th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the show. In his excellent book on the Battle of Fredericksburg, Frank O'Reilly writes, When cannon fire resonated upriver from Franklin's front, marking the beginning of Pelham's duel, Union troops began to stir in the streets of Fredericksburg. Fog clung to the city, obscuring the fields and heights to the west. Federal pickets peered into the mist until they were relieved at 8 a.m. Some of the soldiers resumed their excesses where they had left off the night before. Thomas F. Galway of the 8th Ohio noted that on the morning of December 13th, many of the men are already drunk again. Others rooted around through violated houses, scavenging for overlooked trinkets or food. Anyone telling the story of the fighting at Fredericksburg on Saturday, December 13, 1862, is helped tremendously by the fact the story can be so neatly divided between the action on the southern and the northern portions of the battlefield. It's almost as if two separate battles were fought that day, only a short distance apart. Of course, for the soldiers involved in the bloody combat that day, there was nothing neat and tidy about it. But from a storyteller's point of view, it's perfect. And so with this episode, we'll shift our focus from the southern sector of the battlefield, where the Federals of Franklin's left Grand Division took on Stonewall Jackson's Confederates, to the northern part of the field where the Yankees of Sumner's right Grand Division in Fredericksburg faced Longstreet's rebels, who held the high ground just west of the battered town. As y'all recall, Ambrose Burnside had decided to launch the Army's main attack on December 13th on Franklin's front. But he failed to communicate this clearly to Franklin, and so rather than launch a major assault against Stonewall's line at Prospect Hill, Franklin chose to interpret Burnside's orders in the narrowest possible sense and launched only a limited attack there on the southern part of the battlefield, below Fredericksburg. Burnside started off the day, though, assuming that Franklin would carry out his part of the plan and launch a major assault on the rebels down below Fredericksburg. And while that was happening... Burnside was counting on a disruptive, diversionary attack against Marie's Heights to keep the Confederates on the northern part of the battlefield tied up and occupied so they wouldn't be able to send any help to their comrades involved in the decisive fight to the south. 
To that end, Burnside told Wright Grand Division Commander Bull Sumner to get ready to send one or two divisions forward, quote, with a view of seizing the heights in the rear of the town, end quote. As Tracy said just a moment ago, Burnside clearly intended for Sumner's men to gain a lodgment on Marie's Heights just outside Fredericksburg, which would keep Longstreet's Confederates busy and unable to go down and help Stonewall. Sumner selected Major General Darius Couch's Second Corps for the assignment. We should probably point out that unlike Franklin, who misconstrued his part of Burnside's plan, both Sumner and Couch understood what they were to do. They were to make a secondary assault while the main attack was taking place on the other part of the battlefield below Fredericksburg. Meanwhile, Sumner ordered Brigadier General Orlando Bolivar Wilcox's Ninth Corps to operate on Couch's left and extend its three divisions to the south to connect with Franklin's Grand Division. The Ninth Corps, Burnside's old command, had only been attached to the Army of the Potomac since the end of the ill-fated Second Bull Run campaign. Couch had three divisions under his command in the Second Corps. Since Oliver Otis Howard's division had made the initial crossing of the river two days before and had fought Barksdale's Mississippians through the streets of Fredericksburg, Couch gave Howard an easy assignment on December 13th that of guarding the upper portions of the town and protecting the army's extreme right flank. To lead the attack on Marie's Heights, Couch tapped Brigadier General William French's division to be backed up by Brigadier General Winfield Scott Hancock's division. This would satisfy Burnside's directive that Sumner send one or two divisions forward with a view of seizing the heights in the rear of the town. And so, as Burnside heard the sounds of battle from down on Franklin's front grow more intense, he told Sumner to get ready to carry out his part of the plan. Then, when his troops were set, Couch notified Sumner that he was ready, and soon thereafter, Burnside gave the order for the attack on Marie's Heights to begin. As we said just a moment ago, leading the way out of Fredericksburg would be the division of William French, part of Couch's Second Corps and Sumner's right grand division. French was known as Blinky because of an uncontrollable tendency to blink and squint when he was excited. Years earlier in the old army, French had been the future Stonewall Jackson's commanding officer at a post in Florida. The two officers had not got on well, to say the least, and their clash of wills played a part in Jackson resigning from the service and going off to teach at VMI. Years later, here in December of 1862, French would clash not with his old nemesis, but against James Longstreet, whose Confederates defended Maurice Heights. Here on the northern part of the Fredericksburg battlefield, the ground didn't favor the Federals. The terrain over which the Yankees would advance was a mostly open expanse, 900 or so yards across, that gently inclined toward Marie's Heights. 
To the north, a marsh hemmed them in, while to the south, an unfinished railroad cut and a stream, Hazel Run, confined them similarly. Two main roads ran west out of Fredericksburg toward Maurice Heights. To the south, the Telegraph Road extended out from Hanover Street. At the edge of town, it veered slightly southward before curling around the base of the heights. Along the road on the outskirts of town were some houses and gardens that would slow an attacking force, but offer little cover. Then the Orange Plank Road, an extension of William Street, also ran west from Fredericksburg. It skirted a tannery and crossed Maurice Heights before heading off to Chancellorsville. Confederate batteries on Maurice Heights commanded both the Plank and Telegraph Roads as they emerged from town. Nine guns from the Washington Artillery of New Orleans were posted in newly constructed gun emplacements near the crest, with seven more pieces on either side of this position to concentrate additional fire on the approaches to Maurice Heights. And then just to the south, 21 guns on Telegraph Hill pointed toward both the Telegraph Road and the unfinished railroad cut. Lieutenant Colonel E. Porter Alexander commanding a battalion of Longstreet's artillery, had helped pick the spots for the rebel gun emplacements. He was so confident in the strength of the artillery's position, dominating as it did the open ground between Fredericksburg and the Heights, that he told Longstreet, quote, A chicken could not live on that field when we open on it. Past the edge of town, the Federals would encounter a significant obstacle to their forward progress where a spillway, or mill race, lay across their line of march. This offshoot of a nearby canal had steep banks and was about five feet deep and 15 feet wide. Three bridges spanned the water-filled channel, but the Confederates had sensibly pried up and carried off their floorboards and left only the bare frames for the Federals to cross. As the advancing Yankees bunched up, waiting to cross the skeletons of the bridges, those points became deadly choke points as the crowds of men were perfect targets for the rebel artillery up on the high ground. Beyond the mill race lay 500 yards of mostly open ground with only a few buildings, fences, and a slight swell in the ground to provide any cover at all for the advancing Federals. The rebel cannon would make life hell for the Federal soldiers as they emerged from Fredericksburg, then tried to negotiate the spillway, then attempted to cross the open ground beyond. But then, as the Yankees got closer to Marie's Heights, they would discover the real ace up the Confederates' sleeve, a stone wall that lined the sides of Telegraph Road as it wound along the base of Marie's Heights. And yes, this is the famous stone wall at the Battle of Fredericksburg. Tucked into the road and sheltered by the stone wall was Brigadier General Thomas Cobb's brigade of Georgians. Just as Porter Alexander knew the strength of the rebel cannon posted near the crest of Marie's Heights, Cobb realized that the stone wall created a natural strong point for the Confederate infantry holding the ground in front of the heights. It was here that the road, after years of heavy travel, took on a sunken appearance between the stone walls that flanked it, which the rebel soldiers used to their advantage by turning the road and four-foot-high wall into a long, protective rifle pit. 
The particular section of the stone wall defended by Cobb's regiments came to be known as the Sunken Road, and of it Cobb boasted, I think my brigade can whip 10,000 of them attacking us in front. We have a magnificent position. The pickets had been called in and were in line. Franklin's and Jackson's booming cannon had been heard during all this time, contending with each other on our left. On our front, Longstreet, as well as we, had remained quiet all morning, probably awaiting developments. Colonel Godman now commands, Attention! Shoulder arms! Forward! File right! March! Our regiment moves in the advance, rapidly out Princess Anne Street, to the rear of the town, crosses the canal bridge, and we are just in the very act of climbing up an embankment two to three feet high, and can plainly see the rebels, upon redoubts on Marie's Heights, move rapidly to and fro, while Godman rides coolly at our head, when there is a puff of smoke on the heights, and two men fall. Immediately several more cannon belch forth fire and smoke, and sixteen more fall. Peter Acom and Captain Wallace have received mortal injuries, and Godman is wounded in the thigh. Hundreds who had watched our advance and had seen the batteries open on us, and the men falling right and left, thought we had been annihilated. We hugged the ground for some time, hoping reinforcements would soon come to help us drive the enemy from the stone wall. General Kimball's other four regiments now come over the hill behind us on the run, closing the gaps that are made in their ranks by the storm of missiles. They reach us, drop down by our side, and open fire. Nearly an hour has passed by since the ordeal began, when the second brigade of our division forms at the canal and comes charging midst a terrific hurling of shot and shell, comes up the slope, drops down at the crest and joins the general shooting against the stone wall. In like manner, at intervals of less than half an hour, comes brigade after brigade, doing just the same things, rush over the plain for one-third of a mile, over dead, wounded, and dying, closing up the gaps, while the showers of lead and iron leave the field more difficult to cross because of the increased number of mangled remains. Thousands of men come over the slope and get down at the crest with us before the heights, and there remain, while on the slope behind and among us the sight is horrible and heart-rending. Hundreds of the bleeding and mangled are dragging themselves from the dead and dying, are trampled upon by the thousands, many of whom in the excitement hardly knew whither they were going, save to the certain slaughter. As we look back, the field seems covered with mortals and agony, some motionless, others are dragging themselves to the rear. Occasionally the shell or cannonball that comes into their midst sends arms, hands, legs, and clothing into the air. On the front line there is no safety, for here men fall. It is a baptism of fire and blood. Blood is everywhere. Overhead is a pandemonium of shrieking missiles. Private William Kepler, 4th Ohio Infantry, Kimball's Brigade
French's troops, forming up under the cover of Fredericksburg's buildings, looked ahead at what awaited them and dreaded the order that would send them forward. With only a limited number of streets exiting the town and heading toward Marie's Heights, French decided to send his three brigades into the attack one at a time in succession. His largest brigade, led by Brigadier General Nathan Kimball, would comprise the first wave. Kimball had the distinction of being the only federal officer to have bested both Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in battle, having faced Lee in mountainous western Virginia early in the war, and then he'd got the best of Stonewall at Kernstown in the Shenandoah Valley. Two hundred yards behind Kimball's seven regiments, Colonel Oliver Palmer's three-regiment brigade formed up, with Colonel John Andrews' brigade of three regiments forming a line 200 yards behind Palmer. Three of Kimball's regiments, the 4th Ohio, 8th Ohio, and 1st Delaware, would deploy as a strong skirmish line under the command of Colonel John Mason of the 8th Ohio. They would move out ahead of the main line to drive back the Confederate skirmishers on the opposite side of the mill race. In addition, in preparation for Kimball's main attack, Mason's men were to knock down wooden fences and other obstacles, as well as clear enemy sharpshooters from the small number of houses and buildings on the outskirts of town. Mason's men moved out at the double quick about 11 a.m., Quickly driving off the nearby rebel skirmishers and reaching the mill race, the Federals made their way across the bridge runners or splashed through the knee-deep water in the bottom of the spillway. Portions of the 8th Ohio made their way to the Stratton family home, an adjacent wheelwright shop, and a nearby grocery store, which were some of the few buildings here on the edge of town. Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Sawyer of the 8th recalled that this was, quote, the last line of cover we could secure, and immediately in front of a strong line of stone wall that no skirmish line could carry. End quote. With Mason's men having gone as far as practicable, they went to ground, seeking any cover that could be found. It was then that the rest of Kimball's brigade started forward, advancing from Fredericksburg, heading for Marie's Heights. As the Federals emerged from the town, a member of the Washington Artillery said, quote, What a magnificent sight it is. We have never witnessed such a battle array before. Long lines following one another, their musket barrels gleaming brightly in the sunlight, their gay colors fluttering in the breeze. The lines advance at the double quick, and the alignments are beautifully kept. Then the loud, full voice of Colonel Walton rings out, Ten Chen! commence firing, and instantly the edge of Marie's Hill is fringed with flame. The dreadful work of the Washington artillery has begun. Cobb and his Georgians were crouched in the sunken road behind the stone wall, admiring the rebel artillery's work as it tore great gaps in the ranks of the Union attackers. The Confederate infantry waited only for the enemy to come closer so they could join the battle. Once the Federals came within 300 yards of the sunken road, the Washington artillery found it difficult to depress their muzzles far enough to fire with effect. Fortunately for the rebels, Cobb's muskets could cover the ground directly in front of the stone wall. But the Georgia brigadier withheld his fire, seemingly inviting the Yankees to come closer. 
Only when the Union soldiers closed to within a hundred yards did Cobb finally give the order to fire. As the deadly Confederate musket fire lashed out at the nearby Yankees, the Federal advance ground to an abrupt halt. Cobb allowed his men to fire for ten continuous minutes before he gave the order to cease fire. A Georgian later said that once the smoke began to clear, quote, "You can't imagine what a horrible spectacle I witnessed. I saw hundreds of men lying dead, shot in all parts, some with their heads, hands, legs, arms, etc., shot off and mangled in all manner and shapes. The ground resembled an immense hogpen, and them all killed." Kimball received a bad wound, with command being passed to Colonel Mason of the initial skirmishers. Then Andrews' brigade, followed by Palmer's, entered the fray, only to encounter a similar fate. The Confederate cannon fire and musketry was unrelenting, and the Federals were forced to seek what shelter could be found, or hit the dirt and hug the ground behind the meager cover of the slight swell in the landscape, two hundred yards from the sunken road. French's doomed assault lasted less than an hour. And his three brigades lost one fourth of their men as casualties. One officer of the hundred and thirty-second Pennsylvania stated simply, "Our men were being swept away by a terrific whirlwind." Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez. Longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times, I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places: Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana, but of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April ninth. Union artillery emerged from the shelter of Fredericksburg to bombard the Confederate defenses, hoping to soften up the enemy positions before the next Federal division attacked. But the rebel guns on Marie's Heights dominated the ground upon which the Yankee batteries tried to deploy, and easily smothered the Union cannon before they could fire to any good effect. The only notable consequence of the Union cannon fire came when a shell burst mortally wounded Cobb. 
The area around the sunken road proved to be a hot place for Confederate officers, and they fell left and right, until finally Brigadier General Joseph Kershaw hurried to the spot to assume overall command. Kershaw, too, suffered a wound to his arm, but he ignored the injury and took charge of the road for the remainder of the battle. Units from four Confederate brigades would eventually take part in the fighting in this sector, and by the end of the battle, 16 of 18 brigade and regimental commanders would be killed or wounded. Six fell on the sunken road, and ten were hit on the slope or summit of Marie's Heights. Meanwhile, on the Federal side, Winfield Scott Hancock's division took over where French's men had failed. Hancock's troops marched out of Fredericksburg around noon, approaching the killing fields beyond town with Colonel Samuel Zook's brigade in the lead. Zook's advance, however, soon stalled in the face of the fierce Confederate defensive fire, and after suffering crippling losses, his troops hit the dirt alongside French's shattered command in the dubious shelter of the swell in the ground in front of the sunken road. Zook's horse had been killed, and he suffered a severe fall, but he survived the carnage here at Fredericksburg, only to be mortally wounded seven months later at Gettysburg's bloody wheat field. Hancock realized the rebel cannon had zeroed in on the streets the Federals were using to exit Fredericksburg, so he looked for an alternate route to leave the town. He shifted the rest of his division into the center of Fredericksburg and marched out on George Street. Ultimately, George angled into an intersection with Hanover Street as it crossed the mill race. Brigadier General Thomas Marr's famed Irish Brigade led the advance out George Street to the spillway. Hancock's last brigade, led by Brigadier General John C. Caldwell, shadowed the Irish Brigade's movements. The units of the two brigades became jammed up trying to cross the bridge runners over the mill race, and despite Hancock's efforts to avoid the worst of it, the Confederate artillery made itself felt here as well. So many Union soldiers fell here in the Depression through which the spillway ran that the survivors of the rebel cannon fire called this area the Valley of Death. A Federal described the area as, quote, a bad low place filled with water and mud, and there were many dead and wounded men of ours lying in this mud hole. We had to step over them. Hancock had started out with the understanding that his men would support French's assault, so he was startled to realize that French had no intention of attempting to renew his advance. Instead, French thought that Hancock was coming up to relieve his beleaguered troops. To that end, as Hancock's men came forward, French started his toward the rear. Hancock was none too happy with this unexpected development, and he roundly chastised French's men as they headed back toward Fredericksburg. A private in French's command later said of Hancock, who was known for his colorful vocabulary when he was angry, quote, He made the air sulfurous with imprecations. Until then, I did not know the English language was so rich in eruptive possibilities. Without French, Hancock's movement was doomed to fail as well. Zook's brigade had already bogged down, wavering, said one witness, like corn in a hurricane. Hancock flung Marr's Irish brigade forward to aid Zook. 
Normally, the brigade's distinctive emerald flags would have led them into battle, but after the hard campaigning of 1862, Marr had sent the tattered banners home and replacements had not yet arrived in time for Fredericksburg. Only the 28th Massachusetts carried a green flag into battle here on December 13th for the Irish Brigade. Since most of his regiments were without their emerald flags, Marr had told the men to stick a sprig of boxwood in their caps instead as emblems of their heritage. And so the hard-charging boxwood soldiers swarmed past the rise in the ground and around the brick home of Allen Stratton. The 69th New York jumped a fence bordering an orchard just 50 yards from the stone wall, only to be blasted backwards by a terrible storm of Confederate musketry. Every officer in the regiment was down. One of the wounded, Captain Patrick Donovan, no doubt summed up the feelings of many of the Federals when he wrote, Oh God, this is truly awful. I was not aware that hell personified was so close at hand and ready for our destruction. Marr lost 545 out of the 1,200 men he took into the battle. The Irish Brigade's sacrifice at Fredericksburg would ensure their legendary status, even more so than the bloodbath they had endured at Antietam. Caldwell's brigade fared no better. They charged forward with just as much determination as the Irish, and the 5th New Hampshire arguably got as close to the stone wall as Mars men, but they also reaped the whirlwind. Caldwell himself fell wounded, and his brigade collapsed. Hancock's division, like French's, had been wrecked, losing 2,000 of its 5,500 men. Second Corps commander Darius Couch had by this time left his position at the edge of town to get a better view of the battlefield up in the cupola of the courthouse on Princess Anne Street. He was joined there by Howard, who commanded the only one of Couch's divisions that had yet to be hurled against Marie's Heights. Observing the appalling scene from his lofty vantage point, Couch moaned, Oh, great God, see how our men, our poor fellows, are falling. When he received Hancock's urgent request for support, though, Couch immediately ordered Howard to abandon his position guarding the upper portions of Fredericksburg and, quote, work in on the right of Hancock. And that, dear listeners, is where we'll leave things for this show. With the next episode, we'll watch as the Federals continue to send division after division out into the killing fields in front of Marie's Heights. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime by James B. Conroy. Uh, this book doesn't have anything to do with the Battle of Fredericksburg, but we've kind of run out of books about Fredericksburg that we want to recommend, so we're going off topic. Anyway, this book about the White House during the Civil War is actually a great book about Abraham Lincoln, and not just about his administration, but about the Lincoln family, too. We highly recommend it. So that's Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime, by James B. Conroy. 
Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we would be remiss if we didn't give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Garrett, James, Scott, Nathan, Sean, and sneaking in under the wire just in time to hear his name in today's episode was Fabian, who also sent us a nice note from Berlin, Germany. And then before we sign off, we wanted to remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Fredericksburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.